0: You're listening to a
1: selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland. The numbers from Chief Medical Officer Dr Tony Houlihan yesterday were stark. In the best case scenario under NEFETS models, 200,000 people would be infected by COVID in December. In the worst case scenario, 400,000 would get COVID. And that would result in thousands of hospital admissions and hundreds into intensive care. Neffet's latest modelling prompted the government to bring in work from home early closing and household isolation measures this week as well as a plan to roll out antigen testing in a bid to contain this wave the Taoiseach told his Fianna Fáil parliamentary party meeting last night Neffet's projections were very worrying Professor Philip Nolan is the chair of Neffet's modelling group and he's on the line Good morning Professor Nolan Morning Honia The Taoiseach said they were very worrying what do your latest models show?
2: I think you gave an excellent introduction there, I think, the, about the possibility in an in optimistic scenario of 200,000 cases in December. I think the important thing, though, is the next thing that the chief medical officer said. That's not inevitable. Those models are based on what might happen if nothing changes over the coming weeks in terms of people's level of social contact and the care they take to prevent transmission of the virus during that social contact. So what's happened over the last two two to three weeks is we've gone from 2,000 cases a day to 4,300 cases a day. And if nothing else changes, we're now on a trajectory uh, towards very large case numbers and very large numbers of people in hospital Mm -hmm. coinciding with Christmas. But it only only takes a marginal change in our behaviour to bring the virus back under control.
1: And I think the, the R rate is about one point two five at the moment. Um, Precisely. What what do your latest uh, what are we, how are we tracking at the moment compared to your models? Are we tracking you know on the optimistic scenario, or the pessimistic scenario is four hundred and fifty people needing intensive care by Christmas Day a realistic number?
2: It's possible, but we we're we're trying now to do everything we can to avert that scenario. So those models have only just been run. Uh, We'll rerun them next week. Um, We've had a very challenging couple of weeks and there was a huge growth in cases uh, in the immediate aftermath of the 22nd of October and through the midterm break. Uh, Mm -hmm. The midterm break coincided with a very intense uh, period of socialisation right across all age groups, uh, including second level and and college-going kids. So we've had a huge um, wave of cases uh, over the last that last two weeks, um, it seems slightly less this week. Um, so, so right now we, we will be tracking the more optimistic end of those models and we'll see over the coming weeks. But I think that reinforces the message that marginal changes in behaviour uh, in, in a positive direction can bring yeah. the virus under control, in a negative direction can allow it to spiral very rapidly out of control. So the fundamental message here is we need to act. We need to self-isolate if we develop symptoms. We need to restrict our movements and take our antigen tests if we're a contact. We need to reduce our contacts, perhaps only by a third, or improve our risk mitigation during those contacts Mm -hmm. uh, by washing our hands, wearing our masks properly keeping some distance, avoiding crowds, and oh. ventilating the spaces that we're in.
1: I'll come on to boosters in a second, but just in terms of the modelling. Um, were you taken by surprise with this wave, and, and should you have been taken by surprise? I mean, we reopened from the end of September, and you know, the virus started taking off, and your models started shifting from then, didn't they? And the, the issue of waning immunity, we knew about that from Israel.
2: Yeah, I wouldn't say we were taken by surprise. Um, the issue for us is that it's impossible to predict um, or to prejudge uh, the very small changes in our collective behaviours, which are the difference between the virus being suppressed. In other words, if our contacts are low enough, are well mitigated enough, uh, then there are not sufficient opportunities for the virus to transmit. The reproduction number is below one, uh, or, or marginal changes in the other direction. So. as you you alluded to yourself, a reproduction number of 1.2, 1.3 is not that far above 1, but it's enough to sustain a rapidly escalating uh, epidemic. So uh, we weren't surprised. Um, uh, It was one of the possibilities that was envisaged beyond uh, October the 22nd, a more pessimistic uh, possibility. And it, it puts us in the position where right now we have to send the signal that unless we can pull back in our level of contacts, work from home, and be very careful about any, uh, our priority contacts, uh, we are heading for a very okay. challenging December. If we do follow that public health advice, it's entirely possible that we can then bring this back under control and then allow the booster program to do its job uh, through uh, Christmas and into the spring and help us uh, suppress the virus in the spring.
1: And the government policy is now that uh, people over 50 and the, the immunocompromised mm. should get booster shots. Let's just break down some of the, some of the groups there. There's a group that's particularly worried. Uh, they're the nearly half a million people, 60 to 69. I think three quarters of them got Astra. Uh, and uh, many of them, that wasn't until August. And there's this issue about they might have to wait until January. In other words, go through the worst of this wave in December w- without a booster. Can that not be speeded up?
2: I, it's important, I think, that we, the, the timing of these booster doses is important for our immune system. You give the dose too early and it's less effective. You give the do- dose too late and it's less effective. So it is important that we follow the NIAC advice in terms of uh, the timing of booster doses. And yes, there are, there are groups There's the over 60s uh, with AstraZeneca. There's the group that I'm in, which is the, the 50 to 59s uh, with the one dose of Janssen. The important message here is one when you're offered the booster take it don't delay uh uh don't postpone the appointment every day matters then when you pass that five-month mm-hmm. threshold so uh the bottom line here is uh NIAC have considered the evidence very carefully so no change that, on on that. they have to timing wait. It, we should wait because that's the point at which uh the booster okay. will have its uh, maximum effect. And that's
1: the Astra, you mentioned, the, the the Janssen vaccine, the Johnson & Johnson one, the one-shot one, uh, which you say was, was administered in your case. There's a lot of uh, young people in particular around the country who got that. Again, some talk of shortening uh, the timeline there to three months because that was just a one-shot and maybe uh, there is need for more boosting there. What's the plan there?
2: Well, as I say, NIAC are considering. One of the important things for us, as as a community and as people involved in the pandemic response, is we have the expertise of NIAC to rely on. Uh, they weigh up the evidence very carefully. They've served us exceptionally well in the past. So, uh, as far as I understand, NIAC are considering uh, the particular position of uh, people under fifty uh, who've received the Anson vaccine at present.
1: So that's under consideration. We've still got 30,000 of the over 80s not done, only one third of the 70 to 79s. I mean, given that the boosters are such an important tool, you know, for so many vulnerable people and older people, as they face what could be a very tough month of December, are we moving fast enough?
2: Well, my understanding is that we are. uh, Operationally, the HSE are um, in a position to offer booster vaccines to people as soon as they become eligible for them. And I think, again, the fundamental message that we need to deliver here is, you know, this, this for people is their, is their usually third shot of the vaccine. Uh, uh, it's very important that they treat this shot as seriously as the other two um, and, uh, and, and take that appointment when they're offered. So it's, it's important mm-hmm. that that doesn't become the rate limiting step, that people do take the appointment as soon as it's offered to them.
1: The antigen testing in schools, will that not begin till the week after next?
2: Again, that's that's an operational matter. I think the, the important thing uh, here is to say two things. Um, one, antigen tests have this utility that they're, they're now being used quite extensively uh, to add an extra layer of protection for people who are asymptomatic close contacts of an infected case to uh, make sure that we pick up any possible uh, infections in those circumstances. So again, the first thing to say is Uh, that when it becomes policy that people who are asymptomatic close contacts need to restrict their movements and and do those antigen tests uh, according to the instructions. The second thing to say about antigen tests is even though it's tempting, it's not the test to use when you're symptomatic. Um, We we know uh, from surveys and from our general practitioner and public health colleagues that people are using antigen tests instead of PCR tests. Um, uh, If you're symptomatic, the important thing to do is self-isolate and seek a PCR test.
1: But again, maybe if, you know effort and the official advice coming had, hadn't been so hostile to to antigen tests, there would be greater understanding of how to use them. For instance, there's not a great um, clarity in how people can access the HSE video and how to use them. And of course, you had uh, your own spat with um, Harvard's uh, Michael Mina, Professor mm-hmm. Michael Mina, the epidemiologist, who said you should be ashamed for your snake oil tweet about antigen tests last May. That didn't help, did it?
2: So I think it's important to say that there's no such thing as a good test or a bad test. Um, that there are people who advocate the advocate the wider use of antigen testing, and I have to say that the evidence is it, it, it's not clear in many cases what they mean by the wider use, and the evidence in support of such wider use in terms of its effectiveness in interrupting transmission uh, is not clear. So I think I think our policy nationally has been to use antigen testing in circumstances where those antigen tests uh, work. I have to agree that wasn't the uh, wisest thing I ever tweeted but nonetheless mm-hmm. I, I think the issue is quite clear that antigen tests have their use, we're using them in inappropriate circumstances uh, and I think there's clarity around that issue.
1: Professor Philip Nolan, Chair of Neffert's Modelling Advisory Group, thank you very much indeed for talking to us on Morning Ireland. <music>
3: The Minister for Children was also here earlier after that other big announcement yesterday. A redress scheme for people who spend time in institutions for unmarried, pregnant women and girls and their children over eight decades here. All mothers will be eligible for a payment based on the length of time of their stay, starting at €5,000. Only those children who spent six months or more and haven't previously received redress will be compensated again based on the length of time. Conor O'Mahony is Special Rapporteur on Child Protection and Professor uh, at the School of Law at University College Cork. Conor Mahony. good morning. Good morning. Uh, your own reaction to this plan?
4: Well, on the one hand, uh, you know, you can see that the government is, is making an effort to avoid an adversarial process, as the Minister outlined in his conversation with you earlier on. And I think that intention, broadly speaking, is, is, is welcome. Um, on the other hand, the terms that have been devised of the scheme are such that uh, some people are going to be left behind I think that, that much is, is, is reasonably clear um, and particularly with my own remit especially Special Rapporteur on Child Protection I think looking at the provision made in respect of children who had contact with this system I think there are a number of, of shortfalls, uh, most particularly uh, the minimum period of six months of residency in a mother and baby home before children become eligible for compensation I think it's striking that there's no such minimum period in respect of the women uh, who spend time in these homes uh, the, the, the scheme to from what the Commission of Investigation had recommended in that respect and accepts that there shouldn't be a minimum residence period for women but yet imposes one for children um, and then particularly it, it doesn't make any recommendations in respect of compensation for, for children who suffered extreme neglect and abuse uh, while boarded out in foster homes notwithstanding the, the extensive findings made uh, by the Commission of Investigation report in that regard and I think that's very regrettable.
3: Minister said that he recognises that some survivors who were children in, in the institutions for less than six months will be disappointed by the scheme, but said that many of those people had indicated to him that their priority is access to their information, including their birth names and birth mother. For those and for people who were boarded out, where is their pathway to redress?
4: That's completely unclear uh, at the moment. Uh, For children who were boarded out, we have a situation where we have uh, an acceptance by the government, in essence, that uh, there were serious rights violations that occurred in the boarded out system. Uh, we know that the, the state was aware of these shortfalls uh, at various points throughout indeed, the early tw- as early as the 1920s. There were official reports highlighting the fact that there were inadequate inspection regimes in place, highlighting the fact that many children in that system were, were experiencing very serious neglect and abuse. Um, and so even though that's accepted, uh, as things stand, there are no proposals in respect of a pathway to redress for children who experience abuse and neglect of that nature. Uh, they're not covered uh, by the, the, this scheme unless they spend six months within the mother and baby home. And even then, any redress received will be in respect of what happened in the mother and baby home and not in respect of what happened while boarded out in a foster home. Um, and the, as the Minister mentioned to you earlier on there are no other proposals um, that would provide a pathway to redress for, for children in, in that system. Um, so I think that is a serious gap at the moment you know it, it's it's a real disconnect to say on the one hand we accept that this abuse and neglect happened and it happened on the state's watch and the state knew that it was happening but on the other hand to say that we are making no proposals to provide any form of redress in respect of that, that to me um, w- would not appear uh, to meet the state's obligations.
3: It's half past eight we'll get to news headlines shortly. For those who who will be eligible for address, they're going to have to wait some time to get it.
4: Yes, they are. I mean, this process, obviously, between the length of time it took the commission to uh, conduct its its investigation, followed then by the the gap of, again, nearly a full year before this report comes out and and it seems another year again before the scheme comes into place. It has been a very long and drawn-out process I appreciate these things take time uh, you can't do it overnight but, by any stretch of the imagination but uh, it, it has been quite a long process and I, I think that's one thing but then to have a very long process which as I say leaves leaves some people behind at the end of that process that to me is really what's most disappointing.
3: Conor Manny thank you for speaking to us this morning that's Conor Manny, special rapporteur on child protection and professor of the school of law at the university at university college Cork. We heard from some people who spent time in the institutions earlier in the program talking with our reporter Joan O'Sullivan Let's Let's hear from some more now. Dr Blaheen Hurley was born in a mother and baby home on the outskirts of Cork City and subsequently adopted. She's been giving her reaction to the redress plan to our reporter Killian Sherlock.
5: To, to, to put it in a word, I'm absolutely horrified. I've, I've long said that adoptees in this country are second class citizens. But not only are we now second class citizens, but the adoptees among themselves have been made further divided uh, into second, third and fourth class citizens. I don't think that you can, you can make a, a hard and fast date cut off to decide whether somebody is, is more badly affected than another, because these are things that you carry with you for the rest of your life. I, what, I'm, what I'm actually really concerned about is it can be decided whether somebody should be able to get um, a medical card or not. All of us adoptees, we could have medical issues potentially that we know nothing about and that we are carrying with us um, and that we are giving to our children and our grandchildren. And we have no way of ever knowing what they are.
3: That was Dr. Blaheen Hurley talking with our reporter Killian Sherlock this morning. Colleen Anderson was born in the Sean Ross mother and baby home in Ross Grey in 1965 and sent to the United States when she was a toddler. Her mother was just 14 when she gave birth and we can speak to Colleen now. Good morning Colleen, thank you very much for taking our call today. Good morning. What do you think of the redress plan?
6: I actually, my very, um, i was very shocked um, and uh, horrified and I think it's very demeaning to the mothers, the mothers first and then the babies and um, I just, I think it's very unfair and uh, insulting.
3: Can you explain to me a little bit more about what you feel is unfair and insulting about the plan?
6: Well, first of all, I was born at Sean Ross Abbey, as you said, in 1965 and sent over to uh, a nun, by the nuns, to the niece of the nun in um, Sean Ross Abbey who was doing the uh, adoptions. And I went to a, a family that um, there was a lot of abuse because of a um, mentally ill mother, adopt mother. So the, my 14, 15 years of being basically in a family that I was sent to through adoption and through the mother baby homes was not good. And I don't think you can put a, um, a price, money price on time because I think it's a lifelong, uh, it affects all of us lifelong and it affects the extended families of um, as in birth families and a lot of people. So I just think it's a lifelong um, emotional affection that you can- affected thing that you can't put a price on. If you
3: qualify for the redress scheme, Colleen, it would be based on the length of time that you spent in the mother and baby institution in Ross Gray. It, it won't be based on anything that happened after that. Can you tell me about the impact, the effect of being separated from your mother and, and the impact that's had on your life?
6: Um, it's had quite an impact from, like I said, the family that I went to. Um, I didn't, in my opinion, didn't go to a safe Uh, family and a healthy family so um you know could i if they're talking about time you know spent in an institution again like i said it it affected me emotionally and um plus the fact that even my family birth family wants nothing to do with me because my story was a secret the fact of me being um, born and everything was a secret and that was something that was installed in the mothers as in my mother um when they were young, so, um, you know, it's, it's a big, it's affected me in many ways. And this especially seems to have have affected me because like I said, I I feel for the other mothers because without them, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be here and the other babies, but it's still all one group that has been affected. And my other question would be since they brought in a third party um, consultant for the Zooms and to kind of look at this plus others why didn't they bring? Why couldn't they have brought in another party to look at the um, actual redress scheme that this that he came up with or they came up with? Might, Sorry, go ahead, Colin. Yes, question. no, I was just going to say that would be my question. Put, we might as well put in as much time in this because it's very important. So instead of just coming up with this black and white and that said, so why not have present it to other people, to the groups, and um, to the mothers and babies, and get their thought process.
3: Again, while this won't be reflected in any compensation that will be owed to you, can you tell me about the impact of finding out about your past and your true identity, the impact that's had on you?
6: Well, again, um, I knew when I, I found out I was adopted when I was younger, a lot of it was because of um adopted mom who used basically had said that, you know, she was going to send me back to the orphanage in Ireland. So that's how I found out. And then, so I had that stigma um, in my um, life growing up, plus with the abuse. And, um, but, you know, it was something I always wanted to find my birth mom, no matter how it ended, it was something I always wanted to do. And the other dream was to come back to Ireland, which I did. I moved back three years ago. And again, a lot of challenges and even with the hope of someday possibly my birth family um, siblings talking to me, which I doubt will ever happen because, again, the story that was supposed to be a secret came out and it was through my, my words and my, my story, which did um, start out with uh, my mom's story as well. So it's, it's just it's a big um, emotional effect on me and um, I'll probably always deal with it, as others will.
3: You got to meet your mother, is that right, Colleen?
6: I did. I met her in '99.
3: What do you think she would make of this scheme?
6: Well, first of all, I kind of was hoping at the time when the um, apology had come through that um, she would have been alive. Um, She passed away 12 years ago, she would have been alive. To hear the apology, if nothing else, it was an acceptance that something did horribly happen to these mothers. And um, so that, and then the the redress, I, I don't, you know, the thing about even the dates that I, I thought about when this came out, there's a lot of records, including mine, that show different dates of when babies were either discharged or not discharged and everything. So, I mean, a lot of survivors have already come out and said records were falsified and everything. Okay. So. Again, how you can go by dates and everything, it's just a big, I don't know, I just think it's a big mess.
3: Colleen, we really appreciate you speaking to us this morning. That's Colleen Anderson giving her reaction to the redress scheme for people who spend time in mother and baby institutions.
7: We're going next to the ongoing situation on the Belarus-EU border. It was a standoff in the form of a sit-off at one checkpoint on the Belarusian side. Hundreds of Kurdish people from the northern part of Iraq who are trying to gain entry to the EU sat cross-legged on frozen ground, gazing at the coils of razor wire and an unbroken line of Polish security forces in riot gear. The chorus from the EU is that Belarus is engaged in hybrid warfare along the European Union's northeastern border. Another round of new sanctions have been announced, the fifth round since Alexander Lukashenko's disputed presidential election last year. Let's talk now to Channel Four news journalist Porik O'Brien, who is on the border with Poland and Porik. You're very good to talk to us again this morning. And will you tell us just where you are and what you've been witnessing?
8: Yeah, sure, Audrey. I'm in a town called uh, Beavastok, and that's about an hour's drive from the Belarusian border. I'm on the Polish side. The nearest border crossing to me is a place called Kutnica, and that's where the scenes that you um, described are unfolding. So yesterday, we saw um, about two thousand migrants or so leaving a semi-permanent camp that they had set up on the Belarusian side and walking along the border fence to this border crossing Kuznice, where they had this protest, this sort of sit-in. And it was really um, sort of striking watching the pictures from there, as you described, because the women and children, mainly Iraqi Kurds, were standing, were sitting, I should say, on the, on the on the cold cement in front of a line of Polish border guards. There were two water cannons and behind the, behind the, the soldiers, the Polish military, mi- military. So really quite sort of poignant, poignant imagery. We were, we, we've been speaking regularly to some of the migrants who are in that group, um, and basically a rumour had spread that the Poles were going to open the gates yesterday. So they all started to congregate. A rumour, by the way, that's completely nonsense, but a rumour that is probably being partly generated by Alexander Lukashenko's regime in Belarus. Because remember, we've said it again, but he is weaponizing these people's misery. He is forcing them to the border of of Poland and facilitating their trips in order to punish Poland and neighboring countries for sanctions. His sort of narrative has always been places like Poland, who he sees as harboring members of the opposition, he says you want to take refugees? You want to take political migrants? I'll give you political migrants. I'll give you thousands of refugees and migrants. That's part of his rationale, and that's part of why we saw this big standoff there yesterday. We we were we there was an expectation that there would be violence yesterday. There was lots of talk about that. The Polish border guards were releasing videos, for example, last night of what they said were Belarusian. Um, gar- Belarusian army personnel tearing up sections of a fence. There was there there was some agro. There were some attacks on the on the, on the border fence, but nothing like what people expected. Thankfully, and we had when we were talking to these migrants yesterday, they were sort of determined. Some of the leaders of the groups were determined to keep people safe. So we had people at one point actually sort of trying to protect. The fence, which sort of presents the incongruous situation where you have sort of a small group of migrants at one point on the eastern edge of the European Union actually protecting the EU's borders. So really amazing scenes from yesterday.
7: And I heard one Kurdish man telling the BBC last night that he would die there before going back to Iraq. What is happening to... Have any of them been granted protection anywhere, Porik?
8: Yeah, well, well some do get through. So some are managing to break through the fence or go under the fence and they are ending up in in Poland. And we saw that um, the night before last, we got a call from a network of charities that's operating along the Polish border. Um, We got a call that they were heading into the forest to rescue two Syrian men. Now, when I say forest, we're talking about um, it's the Białowieża forest. It straddles both Poland and Belarus. And just to give your listeners a sense of its scale, I was looking it up online this morning. It's the size of County Clare, so it's huge. These men had gone through the border into this forest and had got lost for four days. When we, came, when we met them with the charity, these two men were in a terrible state. Um, the charity had called the ambulance first they had called the border guard and then they had called the media. The reason they called us was because they wanted us to witness what was happening in order to deter the Polish border guard from picking these men up and pushing them back into Belarus. But it was a desperately sad scene and a desperately incongruous scene. This little sort of clearing in this enormous forest at about midnight with these two men, the charity workers, the border force, and about 30 journalists. They were taken in two ambulances to a a hospital and we understand are, are recovering well this morning.
7: Porik, the fifth round of sanctions, which includes contracts between Irish aircraft leasing companies and the Belarusian national carrier. They were imposed yesterday uh, by the EU. Lukashenko has spoken by phone to Chancellor Angela Merkel. Will Will any of this impact his behaviour?
9: Well
8: that's the big question. I mean, the the sanctions are significant. So we had a meeting yesterday of EU foreign ministers where they sort of explored the, the legal scope of this new package of sanctions. Sanctions are, you know, very legally fraught sorts of instruments, but these ones, it would strike me, have the potential to have real, real teeth. And just, as you said, just an an example of that that sort of brings it closer to home and closer to Ireland is the fact that there is a clause in this package that talks about banning EU companies leasing aeroplanes to Belarus. Now, Belavia, who are the Belarusian carrier, the Belarusian airline, lease about half of their fleet of 30 or so planes from companies based in Ireland. So if and when these sanctions kick in, Belavia could lose half of its fleet. So, you know, potentially real teeth to those sanctions. In terms of the call with Angela Merkel, the opposition in Belarus are unhappy about that call because they see that call as, as, as Angela Merkel and the EU somehow legitimizing Lukashenko because that, that is partly what he wants. He wants a seat around the table. But, um, you know, we'll, we'll see. He, he's, he, he, is a, he, he is a strange man. I mean, how how much he worries about what's happening west of his border, we don't know. He worries a lot about what's happening east of his border, because remember, um, Vladimir Putin of Russia is basically his sponsor in all this.
7: Porik, thank you very much indeed. Porik O'Brien, Channel 4 news journalist on the border with Poland, talking to us live this morning. A 3.1 magnitude earthquake hit
0: western Scotland early this morning, 88 miles northwest of Glasgow. Almost 50 people reported to the US Geological Survey that they'd felt the tremor just before 2am, with some from as far away as Edinburgh and Ballycastle in Northern Ireland. Dr Martin Molhoff is Director of the Irish National Seismic Network. Good morning, Martin.
9: Yeah, good morning.
0: What do we know about this quake and its epicentre?
9: Yeah, we know um, this quake had a magnitude uh, 3.1, and it occurred at uh, quarter to two, exactly 60 minutes to two, actually. And the location, the epicenter, uh, it's just offshore on the Western, um, in Western Scotland, uh, at the, in the hybrides, at the northern tip of the Eura Island, uh, which is about 35 kilometers south of Oban and about 100 kilometers north of Bali Castle in Northern Ireland.
0: And what does a, a 3.1 magnitude earthquake feel like?
9: Yeah, I had a look. Um, there are the reports one can see from the European Mediterranean seismological center. And most people uh, that live locally, they report very loud shake, then a rumble and uh, rattling of doors or furniture. So it's on that kind of level. So it's... Mm. It's so strong that people can feel it, but it's not uh, damaging or anything.
0: It's kind of scary, though, um, like the earth literally moving. Um, And and if you're as far away as someplace like Ballycastle in Northern Ireland, would it be that strong?
9: No, it wouldn't. I I have no figures here how many people actually felt it in Ballycastle, but it's probably on the limit um, that you just about feel it.
0: Uh, Martin, is this unusual, or or do we have a a, a number of quakes in in Britain and and, and Ireland in the course of a year?
9: Yeah, no, it's not unusual. So uh, in the U.K., a magnitude 3 earthquake like this one happens about every three years, and these are felt, and sometimes they're stronger earthquakes. I think the strongest was magnitude 5, 5.5 or 5.4 in the U.K. In Ireland, we also have earthquakes. Uh, they're a little bit weaker than in, in the U.K., so the strongest one uh, in Ireland we recorded so far with our National seismic Network that we operate here at Dublin Institute for Advanced Studies was uh, 2.4, and they happen usually in Donegal. Maybe you remember two and a half years ago, there were two earthquakes felt. Over 100 people felt the earthquake in Achillebags there on the 7th April 2019. That was
0: a 2.4. Do they do any damage? Do they do damage to the structures or foundations of houses?
9: No, these are too weak uh, generally to to, to do any damage. It depends not only on the magnitude, also the depth. So if an earthquake is very shallow, it's easier felt and it can also easier damage something, but uh, magnitude 2 or 3 usually really doesn't do any damage.
0: And Martin, do you draw any link between uh, an earthquake like this and climate change?
9: Yes, uh, that, that, that question is often asked. I, not directly, no. I think maybe on geological time frames, you know, or hundreds of thousands of years, uh, there is a link uh, between the atmosphere and the solid Earth, but on, on shorter timescales of years, I'm not aware of uh, that it's possible uh, to have a link between climate change and the currents of Earth. Uh, and
0: just very briefly, do you expect further tremors to follow once you have one quake like this?
9: Yes, uh, all earthquakes have aftershocks, also small earthquakes. But because this earthquake is so small, uh, possibly, uh, probably the aftershocks are so weak that they might not even be detected, even with our uh, sensitive instruments.
0: OK, well, Martin, good to talk to you. Dr Martin Molhoff
1: there from the Irish National Seismic Network. If tomorrow never comes, goes the Garth Brooks lyric. Well, it looks like he's coming to Dublin on the 9th and 10th of September. Two dates for your diary if you're a Garth Brooks fan. That's 2022, by the way. Our arts and media correspondent Sinead Crowley has more. Uh, we waited a long time for this, Sinead.
10: Well we have indeed been waiting for news of some type. It was 2014 when uh, Gate happened which was when up five concerts eventually were announced and tickets sold but of course they didn't go ahead um, because of planning issues and now fans have been waiting ever since then for news. There were rumours and there were lots of stories floating around but finally two concerts confirmed this morning as you're saying there on the 9th and 10th of September 2022 with the tickets going on sale this Thursday at 8 o'clock. Now the news this morning morning is of two concerts. Obviously, there had been talk again of Mm -hmm. five in a row. Um, What we do know is that there could well be planning permission for up to those five. But tickets never go on sale, really, for all concerts at one time. So this two concerts going on sale this morning would be expected, really. That's how these things tend to work. You announce your couple of concerts, you see how the tickets go. And then maybe there might be more announcements. Who knows? So just to say that there's two this morning Mm -hmm. doesn't mean that there won't be more. It just means that what we know this morning is these two dates of the 9th and 10th of September. Now, these are going
1: to be Garth Brooks' only European dates, I think, in 2022. So what kind of cost
10: are the tickets likely to come in at? Uh, the tickets at the moment, are we're being told, are €65.40 standing and €81 Euro seated. So, you know, I suppose reasonable enough, really, for a venue like Croke Park for a show the type that he has promised to put on and has put on in the past. And yet yeah, it is very interesting that they're saying it's the only European venue that Garth will play, and that's very prominent, actually, in the press release this morning. So you would imagine that they're wondering, will people actually travel to this venue? Because obviously, um, Garth Brooks, you know, is is popular all over the world, all over Europe, Croke Park as well is known as a venue that people, you know, often want to see concerts in. So interesting to see will people travel to that. And that, again, might, you know, might add to the amount of tickets going on sale or maybe the concerts being promised in the future. But of course, he has his fans here as well. I mean, it really when you think back, it really is extraordinary. The amount of tickets that he sold the last time people going to multiple concerts, people queuing up to buy the tickets, you know. And it, it, if we think back to 2014, the interest grew over time as more and more concerts were announced. So be interesting to see if that is still there and almost, you know, eight years, almost ten years later, but, you know, we'll wait and see. But we'll certainly know next Thursday what the initial interest is like, because that's when the first tickets go on sale.
1: Yeah, and there'll be plenty of people to sing along to. Friends in low places, the river of tomorrow never comes. Uh, He's certainly got a huge following here in Ireland. You sound whatever, like you're a bit worldwide. of a fan there
10: yourself. Sa- uh, no, you, you sound like you're a fan yourself, on you with all those <laughs> songs at the tip of your tongue. So you're clearly going to be first in the queue. <laughs> well,
1: I'll, I'll give you the review come next September. Sinead Crowley, Arts and Media Correspondent. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs>
11: The Taoiseach, Micheál Martin, says there is serious intent in the EU to solve post-Brexit difficulties over the Northern Ireland Protocol. Speaking to the BBC's Laura Koonsberg, he said the mood music surrounding EU-UK negotiations had improved in recent weeks. The Taoiseach's comments come ahead of a meeting between the UK's Brexit Minister, Lord Frost, and the EU Commission's Vice President, Mara Shevkovich, which is aimed at resolving the dispute over the Protocol.
5: It's never going to be perfect, uh, but it's important that we don't allow perfect to become the enemy to good.
10: It's very clear that many businesses just think the way it's operating is over the top.
5: You know, I spoke to Angela Merkel uh, a year ago who said to me, the last thing we want is an abundance of cheques. We want to minimise cheques.
10: That's what's happening, and right, that's, isn't that's, it? That's it is a, ab- no,
5: it's not. I think mean, that's overstated no, Laura, to some degree. There's not an abundance of cheques, and it can get resolved. Uh, with goodwill on all sides. I'm glad to say that uh, the uh, mood music has changed. Now there's still a long way to go.
10: A year ago you said that the UK had to knuckle down to get a deal. Mm. What's your message to the UK now?
5: It was Christmas Eve in the end.
10: <laughs> it was.
5: I would, I'd say don't leave it to Christmas Eve this year.
11: Let's go now to our London correspondent, Sean Whelan, who's in Cardiff this morning for a meeting of the British-Irish Council. Sean, the Taoiseach's sounding slightly more upbeat than he has in recent times. What's behind this, do you think?
12: I think uh, what's behind it is an effort to de-escalate tensions that have arisen over the past couple of weeks, very obviously uh, arisen over the past couple of weeks, and uh, the Taoiseach is... Uh, trying to uh, talk nicely to the British and say, come on, we can fix this. It'll be fine. No need to go down this uh, dreadful Article 16 route. Uh, he's not making any threats at all. He <clears throat> went out of his way to not make any threats or speculate on what might happen uh, if the British did activate Article 16 and was saying, I prefer to concentrate on solutions and getting a deal done and we can do this and it's not as bad as you think it is. It's not as bad as it's been reported. That is the diplomatic stance now from the Taoiseach. And it was contrasted somewhat in that interview with uh, the uh, foreign minister, Simon Coveney, who would said earlier that uh, triggering Article 16 could result ultimately in the suspension of the trade agreement with Britain, effectively a a very big trade war uh, between the uh, UK and the EU. The Taoiseach saying, no, 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 we don't need to go down that route at all. Let's not even think about that. Let's just concentrate on getting these technical fixes in that the European Commission uh, have proposed. He went into a meeting after he recorded that interview with Michael Gove, who's the uh, UK representative at this British-Irish Council today, and uh, Mm. the word back from that was all very constructive, good meeting, uh, people seeing eye to eye on a lot of issues. It's not a negotiating forum, obviously, uh, but, you know, Certainly the Irish are saying it was a very um, constructive type of meeting and that the lines of communication are open. Um, However, um, they are playing on this notion that there's a sea change and and that the uh, change of tone over the past week or so on the British side. But yesterday in the House of Lords, Lord Frost went out of his way to dismiss any talk of of, uh, changing policy or dropping uh, his objectives and saying, my policy remains exactly as I set out in the command paper back in July.
11: Talk to us then about this meeting today between Maroshevkovich and David Frost. Any cause for optimism?
12: Um, no cause for optimism, but no cause for pessimism either. Uh, from what we gather, nobody's expecting any breakthroughs or breakdowns uh, at this meeting once again. Uh, we might get some clue as to what's happening at 9.30, because Mara Shefkovic is addressing, via video link, uh, a meeting of the uh, Brexit Institute at Dublin City University. Uh, So that might be worth tuning into, but he is due to have a a lunch meeting with David Frost in in Brussels to uh, assess the uh, progress or otherwise of the meetings of officials that have been going on all of this week. Now, there was a change of tone last week. There's no doubt about that. There was a backing away from a confrontation uh, on the British side. Uh, We'll see if uh, reports that Boris Johnson doesn't want uh, a disrupted Christmas Um, and is leaning on uh, David Frost to try and make a deal uh, in the short term, uh, see if those reports are true or not. I'm not sure we're going to get white smoke from the meeting today, uh, but the mood music around it and any comments that, that come from it uh, will be interesting. Two weeks ago, the commentary was pretty uh, unpleasant. Last week, it was quite neutral again, uh, and we'll see how it, how it fares today.
11: You're in Wales for a meeting of the British-Irish Council, one of the bodies set up under the Good Friday Agreement. What's on the agenda with you?
12: Uh, recent political developments is the uh, capital right. phrase. <laughs> uh, that covers, Where of do course, you start? a multitude... Where do you start? But you start, obviously, with Brexit. Uh, it's something that would affect all of the, the parties at this. I mean, there's eight um, administrations represented uh, around the table and they would all have um, a, a dog in this particular fight, uh, whether it be the issue of um, port traffic through Wales or Scotland and its well-known antagonism towards uh, Brexit uh, and the uh, even Jersey and Guernsey and the fishing dispute with the French. So there's plenty for them to talk about. There's also, of course, the COVID pandemic and sharing practices and information on how this pandemic is playing out in those various uh, political units. There's also uh, some items on the agenda about um, native language teaching uh, and, of course, that has a, a little resonance because the uh, uh, Irish Language Act, promised our Irish Language Act in Northern Ireland, it's somewhat anomalous amongst all of the UK administrations uh, and Ireland in not having um, a formal uh, Language Act uh, in place. It's not directly on the agenda, but it's, it's tangentially on the agenda, if you know what I mean.
11: Sean, thank you for that. Sean Whelan there, our London correspondent, who's in Cardiff this morning. <laughs>
0: And so it ended in tears with the COP26 president, Alec Sharma, apologising for last-minute changes to the final agreement following a watered-down pledge on coal. China and India threatened to walk if those two words, phase out, were not changed to phase down. Ireland's Climate Minister Eamon Ryan described the wording as deeply disappointing, though he and others found the positive, saying the Glasgow Pact kept the dream, the ambition of limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees alive. My next guest was not mining for the positive or mincing her words. Mary Robinson former President, former UN High Commissioner for Human Rights and Chair of the Elders described the outcome as a historically shameful dereliction of duty. She's back from Glasgow. She joins us now. Good morning Mary Robinson. Good morning. You discharged both barrels after that final agreement. Who do you blame for this, as you said, historically shameful
13: dereliction of duty? That relates to the lack of ambition, especially of uh, important big emitters, G20 countries. And, you know, I kept naming them uh, Australia, Brazil, China, Mexico and Russia that didn't increase ambition, but also the lack of ambition on the financial side of the EU and uh, the US blocking a proper facility for loss and damage. I mean... You know, when carbon tracker the Climate Action Tracker uh, announced during the COP that having added up uh, where we were, we were heading for a 2.4 degree world, that's when I had my emotional moment, because I know what that means. It means that anybody under 60 in our world is likely to have a world that is less livable in, which is facing terrible fires, terrible floods, terrible droughts and millions of people having to leave their homes. And anybody under 30 is sure to live in that world. That's what we're talking about. And the fact that we haven't got that mindset in the leaders is is the key to why we didn't have a a good cop. There was some progress made, and I can go into that, because I think it's important. But uh, the overall, you know, if you're a president of a small island state, and I know quite a number of them, uh, they go home, you know, almost in despair because we've just barely kept alive and uh, being able to get to the one point five degree world.
0: Yes, and taking on board all you say at the end of it, hundred and ninety seven nations came together. They did strike a deal. It may be a flawed deal, but it's a deal nonetheless, and it's a step forward. Uh, the rule book for Paris finally agreed, and they can move on next year to Egypt.
13: No, that is true, and you know it's worth noting. Um, it needs the complexity of a COP. And um, the structure for agreeing as a COP is not good. It's by consent, consensual. So that's why it's so messy. But, you know, progress was made on a whole range of things, as you said. Uh, particularly, uh, the, there was a commitment to double adaptation finance, finance to help poorer countries to adapt to the shocks of mm-hmm. climate change. And um, there were... Uh, uh, countries um, that um, there were a lot of voluntary deals, side deals, which will make a difference. We saw the pledge on methane, which John Kerry was particularly responsible for, which in the short term can help us um, stay at or, or get, you know, not go above 1.5. Uh, there was a, a further push on coal by a number of countries, and at the end, the wording on coal was new in the statement. It was supposed to be a phase out of coal, and... Um, uh, and, and fossil fuels mm. but uh, and subsidies for fossil fuels and, and if we could it was, it was yes. weakened to phase down and that was what hurt a number of countries but there were also agreements even on oil and gas a number of countries including Ireland I was glad to see said they're going to phase out oil and gas um, there was a reversing of deforestation which seemed more robust than the previous uh, commitment which was made as far long ago as in New York in 2014 but it didn't it wasn't implemented and there was also a big shift in the financial sector, you know, a decarbonizing of the financial sector that Mark Carney was very proud of. And people are wondering, you know, are those trillions real? If they are, it will matter. So there were a number of agreements of that kind. And you need the complexity. You need the, you know, you need the voices of the most vulnerable at the COP to impress those who don't um, have a mindset that is needed, a crisis mindset. It didn't, we didn't quite succeed in uh, in COP26. So now we go on to the African COP next year in Egypt, COP27. But I think the world is in more crisis mode and that was felt. Why is it
0: that at a gathering like COP26, you might be able to explain, uh, at a gathering like this, you still had, and everyone says the science has now been accepted, but you still had Apparently, 500 fossil fuel lobbyists present in Glasgow. And yet somebody like a a woman we spoke to earlier, Ruth Spencer, representing seven of the Caribbean islands, uh, she wasn't able to get access to the sessions.
13: Yes, I heard Ruth this morning and I felt very much for her. And I I totally agreed with something she kept emphasising. What's going to make the difference now is what happens locally, including in Ireland. And if I can just take a moment of pride um, on... What was supposed to be the last day of COP on Friday, County Mayo and my town of Balna um, had an event to mark. Um, school children first, and then people marched in the streets in Balna, and they kayaked on the River Moy. Um, and I sent them a message beforehand, um, telling them I was proud of what they were doing. Locally is going to be so important going forward at all levels. But uh, the, the fossil fuel lobby was very powerful and always is, and it, its voice, in particular, is Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia always plays. A bad game at at cops taking out language in you know in, in, in the eighth measure which is about future education on climate change taking out references to youth to uh, human rights to indigenous peoples to just transition etc you know but you know what was significant and the significant that it was watered down was that we did get language about phasing out fossil fuel in the text we've never had that before can you imagine and, and You know, when we talk about subsidies to fossil fuel, I want people to understand, because I've only recently understood it myself, there are two kinds of subsidies. The production subsidies um, to uh, fossil fuel companies are actually tax exemption. Mm -hmm. Tax exemption. We tax exempt what's killing us. Would you believe it? And the other type of um, uh, um, subsidies um, are subsidies on consumption. And you have to be very careful there in removing those subsidies because you can put people into energy poverty or into real poverty. So, you know, that's one that has to be done very sensitively and, you know, with real thought. And um, as we saw with the Gilets Jaune in France, you know, they mm-hmm. and, and we need to make the move to be tr- uh, green and green jobs and etc. cetera f- affordable. Um, and governments might have to invest, including Ireland, put money into making sure that we can go green in an affordable way and have people with us, and have regenerative agriculture, which excites me a lot. Mary Robinson,
0: thank you very much indeed for joining us this morning. It's 20 minutes past eight now.
1: A leading psychology professor and member of NEFET's Communications Advisory Group says government COVID advice to parents needs to make sense. This follows Education Minister Norma Foley's remarks this week that people should reconsider hosting and attending birthday parties or playdates for children. University of Limerick Professor Orla Muldoon says contradictions in government advice can make it difficult for parents to buy into and trust government recommendations. She's been speaking to our reporter Cian McCormack.
5: It is important for the children to socialize as well and play dates but at this stage hopefully if we just play our part, hunker down, we won't see another year of this.
14: These are the views of parents collecting their children from preschool in Dublin.
5: If it means we can all have a family Christmas and everyone to be a Christmas, I'd be willing to do it. It makes sense and if you can do something outside, like
11: maybe have a garden birthday party or a park birthday party, it's probably a bit safer.
14: While the majority of those who stopped for this Vox pop agree with reducing their children's social contacts, some are doing the opposite
1: playdates dates should be should be scrapped because I think the uh, the rates are too high at the moment.
14: Have you had any play dates organised?
1: I have. I have a play date today organised.
14: Is it outside? Indoors. Because you say you advise you take on board what the minister has said, but you're doing the opposite.
1: Possibly, I am doing the opposite. Um, it's hard to know what's right and what's wrong. I think everyone's trying to do their best. Clear guidelines would be better.
14: A common view emerges from these conversations, and that view is. People want clearer guidelines from government.
7: I think people
0: are totally flummoxed and just want guidance on it, I think. When it's left up to parents now with parties, we were talking about this morning, a lot of parents were saying about parties that people have planned. And I think that um, a lot of parents now are, some are keeping their kids back, some are sending
1: them, so it's a bit of a head melt really.
14: Professor of Psychology at the University of Limerick, Orla Muldoon, who's a member of the communications and advisory group to Neffet, says messaging and communication to parents needs to be clearer.
5: The communication from government, effectively, it needs to make sense. So make it make sense for people. Parents, they're being told, well, don't have a party, but their children are being sent into a school where there's 30 children. That doesn't make sense to the average parent. How is it that the party is a problem, but the school isn't? The other thing about making it make sense is that actually we need to be sure that the advice that people are getting is consistent with what we now know about COVID. So we now know COVID is airborne. So therefore, it doesn't make sense to ask parents to cancel outdoor parties. Um, And in fact, it makes less sense to ask them to cancel outdoor parties than to ask them to continue to send their children to school. So these kinds of contradictions make it very difficult for parents to stay with what's been messaged. Because of that, people can now see that the advice is not consistent, it's not clear, and that undermines both trust and compliance in in what people are being asked to do.
14: But are parents heeding the advice to cut their children's social contacts? Nilo Dwyer's company, Really Grand Events, has seen a trend this
8: week. Uh, we send entertainers to people's houses or venues. They'll perform what it be magic shows or puppet shows or, and the, the, the princess parties we do as well.
14: What have you seen over the last number of days, Then, in terms of your, your bookings? Have there been cancellations?
8: We, we've had a couple of cancellations from clients who've decided to either postpone or, or indeed cancel entirely the, their plans for our children's birthdays. There's definitely a fall off from, from the house parties. So it does leave us very vulnerable.
14: And while businesses like Nilo Dwyer's are vulnerable, so too is the ability of children to learn through play. Again, Professor Orla Muldoon.
5: There is an acceptance in developmental psychology that play is the work of childhood, that children aren't just playing, they're actually learning things. And they mostly learn this from other children. So they're learning all sorts of social skills like turn-taking and reciprocity. And if we don't offer children the opportunities to play with their peers, to interact with their peers, there is a learning cost for these children as well. And that report from
1: Kian McCormack.
0: You've been listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland.